Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Well, good morning, everybody. Ah, you still don't get it. Good morning, everybody. Much better. That's right. You know, the last song uh, the band played, I specifically asked for that song. Uh, it's one of my favorites, uh, and it's entitled Gratitude. And that is exactly how I feel every time I step up here, grateful. Uh, grateful to God and grateful for the 38 years that I got to serve as a minister of Northeast. I love this church, and uh, that's why I continue uh, to pray for her uh, every single day. So let's pray, okay? Then we'll get going. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Help us to be grateful to you for all that we have. I pray this morning that um, every single one of us listen with ears to hear. Uh, Help us not to think it is for our neighbor or the person sitting next to us, but for us. Uh, help Help us to change our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. About a month ago, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding near Zion National Park in southern Utah. I mean, you talk about a destination place to have a wedding. We were in this canyon surrounded by these high cliffs, and it was just beautiful, and it was incredible. And if if you're a young couple thinking about a destination wedding, I'd highly recommend Zion. And if you need a minister to officiate, here's my email address right here on the the bottom. (laughs) Now, because we were already out west, Vicki and I decided to stay an extra week, and so we visited Red Rock Canyon near Vegas. It's gorgeous. Uh, Death Valley in California. It's hot. (laughs) And my favorite was uh, Bryce Canyon in southwest Utah. If you've ever been to Bryce, you know that it's absolutely stunning because it's filled with these tall, thin rock spires that kind of look like totem poles called hoodoos. And and they they are just a sight to behold. Now, on our first day at Bryce... Vicki and I were standing at the famous sunset point when I looked down to my right and, and this was my view. It was a path, a steep dirt switchback path that circled down to the bottom of Bryce Canyon. Can you see the people at the bottom? I mean, way down there at the very bottom. Now, in my younger days, I, I wouldn't have thought twice about taking off down that trail, but on this particular day, I found myself frozen by two little words, but I. I want to walk down that trail, but I'm getting old. I want to walk down that trail, but I've got bad hips. I want to walk down that trail, but I don't have the right shoes. I want to walk down that trail, but I know if I go downhill, I got to go uphill. I want to walk down that trail, but I know I'd have to do it alone because Vicki already said, I ain't going. <laughs> I kid you not, those two little words held me captive at the top of that canyon. But I, but I, but I. You ever been held captive by those two little words? If we're honest, I think we all have. I know what I need to do. I know where I want to go. I know what I need to become, but I can't. I won't. I shouldn't. Give me a few examples. I know I ought to work out and get in shape, but I feel kind of tired. I know I would love to live relaxed in confidence, but I worry. I know I should have my finances in order and be generous, but I spend too much. 
I know I should eat kale and spinach and lentils, but I love butter and sugar and bacon. But I, but I, but I, but I. It's what psychologists call a defeater belief. Not only does it keep me from succeeding in what I want and what I need, but it also stops me from even trying. Now, are you aware that that little phrase, but I, occurs a whole bunch of times in the Bible as kind of a reason or an excuse for not doing what God calls someone to do? God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, but I am slow of speech and tongue. God goes to Gideon. He says, I want you to deliver my people from the Midianites. And Gideon says, but I am the least of my family. God says to Jeremiah, I want you to prophesy and to speak my word to my people. And Jeremiah says, but I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. I'm too young. Esther, go to the king, save Israel. But I have not been called by the king for 30 days. Abraham, become the father of a great nation, but I am too old. Peter, cast your nets on the other side of the boat and I'll do a miraculous thing for you. But I tried all night. Over and over we see these words, but I, but I, but I, but I can't, won't, shouldn't. Now what's interesting is that God pretty much never disagrees with any of those statements. He doesn't say, hey Moses, come on man, you're, you're a pretty good speaker. Or Abraham, after all, you're not all that old. He never disputes their inadequacies. Something that, humanly speaking, we, we do it all the time. I was at a t-ball game a couple weeks ago. I hadn't been in a t-ball game in a long time. And I, I watched this one kid who had absolutely no clue. And there's always one with no clue, right? No clue whatsoever. He could barely hit off the tee. I mean, he hit the tee more than he hit the ball. And when he was in the outfield, I kid you not, his glove was on his head more than it was in his hand. Would you believe after this one game, I overheard his mom and dad say, you are an amazing ball player. And I wanted to say, switch that boy to piano right now. Switch him. (laughs) Hear me, this technique of false praise has been around for a long time, even during the days of the Apostle Paul. If you were a speaker and you wanted to win a following and gain credibility, then the very first thing you had to do was to praise your audience. Tell them how intelligent they are how influential they are, how well-born they are, how connected they are, how powerful they are. And this false praise stuff went on all the time in the city of Corinth. A few years back, a group of us from Northeast went to Greece, and one of our first stops was to the city of, ancient city of Corinth. As you can tell, there's not much there today, just a few ruins. But one time, you have to understand, it was a tough, thriving city, lots of sailors, lots of trade, lots of money, lots of power, And so if you were a speaker and you wanted to get their attention, you better lay it on thick. Now, with all that as a backdrop, I want you to try to imagine how the people in the church at Corinth, not the city, but the people in the church felt when Paul's letter is read out loud to them and they hear Paul's description of them at the beginning of this letter. I'm sure they're thinking, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to tell us how great we are. 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It's an odd way to address the crowd. I mean, Paul doesn't start out, hey, Christians in Corinth, you got it, man. High IQ, lots of resources, lots of connections, man, you got it. No, instead, Paul actually invites them to reflect on what we might call a review or their personal inadequacies. Hey, Corinth, wise, not so much. Influential, not so much. 
Well-born, great gene pool? No, not really. Paul tells it like it is, but at the same time, he doesn't beat them up. He doesn't say, hey, you Christians at Corinth, you are not all of that, so you better lower your expectations. Don't dream big, don't expect to do anything great for God, and for sure, don't expect to be influential in this world. It's not what he says. Instead, he says, you expect great things now because God's up to something that nobody would have anticipated and nobody could have done but God. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. But God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. But God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, it is written, and Jeremiah was writing this, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in your riches. Don't boast in your strength. Don't boast in your wisdom. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, there are two words that are the turning point of this passage. They were what changed everything in Paul's life and they can be the turning point in your life if you want it to be. And they are the words, but God. But I, but I, but I, but God. But God is now doing in Corinth with you, Paul says, what God already began on the cross with Jesus, but God. And so if you carry nothing away from this message today, I want you to carry those two words, but God. So let's say them out loud together like you mean it. One, two, three. Great. But God means that this world does not get the last word on who you are, on what you become, and on what you might do. This world may say, your situation is never going to change. That lack of education will always embarrass you. That addiction will always enslave you. That depression will always defeat you. That failure will always define you. That past will always haunt you. That future will always frighten you. That weakness will always torment you. But God says otherwise. But God begs to differ. But God. It is a phrase that is used over and over in the Bible. But I, but I, but I, but God. Joseph said it to his brothers, who you remember for crying out loud, sold him into slavery. But years later, when Joseph looked at it from a different perspective, do you remember what he said to his brothers? He said, you intended it to harm me, but God used it for good. The psalmist said, my flesh and my heart may fail, and they will, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus said, with human beings, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible, but God, but God. But God, so stop excusing yourself and letting yourself off the hook and whining about what you can and cannot do when it comes to God's calling in your life. But I, but I, but I, we all say it, and I know this sounds odd, and I don't know how else to say it, but God is bigger than your butt. One T, one T, one T. (laughs) Of course you're not smart enough. Of course you're not strong enough. Of course you're not good enough. But God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the lowly and the meek and the timid and the too shy and the too loud and the not very polished and the not very accomplished. So whatever is going on right now in your heart or with your job or with your marriage or with your money or with your children or with your health, and I know it might not look really, really good, but God, friends, sin, death, pain, and hell are final are real, but they're not final because the power of the cross and the resurrection has not finished remaking this sorry world. But God, right? 
but God. And now Paul brings this message to Corinth, a city that was all about power and influence and prestige. I read that in Corinth, slaves would actually engage in competition with other slaves to see who looks the most elite, who looks the most impressive, who looks the most attractive. But God says otherwise about every human being, nobody too lowly. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel, when a lowly shepherd boy is about to be anointed king and God's prophet Samuel says, remember this, people look at the outward appearance. Corinth looks at the outward appearance. Louisville looks at the outward appearance, your degree, how smart you are, how attractive you are, but God looks at the heart. Tell me, what does God see? What does God feel when he looks at every human being? Even the most lowly, even the most uneducated. I wanna show you a video of, uh, of our daughter, Lindsay, talking to our granddaughter, Maddie. Now, Maddie's a little hard to understand, uh, so you need to listen really, really close. Watch this. Okay, can you say your name? Look at mommy, say your name. Bobby. No, your name. Bobby Duck. Maddie Cat. Okay, hold on. Let's wait just one minute. Can you sing Jesus Loves Me? Sing it. Jesus. Sing it. No, Jesus. What about? Let it go. Can you sing it? I don't know more. No more. How old are you? I'm not old. Anna and Elsa. How old are you? Three. No, how old are you? Two. Can you show me your happy face? Can you show me your sad face? Can you show me your mean face? Can you show me your silly face? Yeah! Thank you, Maddie. Say, I love you. Say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Say, bye-bye. Bye. Tell me, how much is that little life worth? And what does God see and what does God feel when he looks at every human being on this planet? Whatever their age, whatever their color, whatever their background, what goes on in the heart of God? How much does every life matter to God? I mean, is it just the rich? Is it just the strong? Is it just the powerful? You know, two years ago, we had no idea that Maddie would be a part of our family. She was born four weeks premature to her mom who wasn't making the best choices for herself or her newborn, and as a result, the state came after the baby. It was then when Whitney, a second cousin, and her husband Jason said, we cannot let this happen, so they agreed to keep the baby for a month while the mom tried to straighten her life out. That one month turned into nine months. And it was over those nine months when Whitney became acquainted with her 12-year-old daughter's friend from school named Molly. Molly's our granddaughter. And then Whitney became friends with Molly's mom, our daughter, Lindsay. And so Whitney soon learned that Lindsay and her husband, Joey, were foster parents and had sadly just had to give back a little boy that they were hoping to adopt. So Whitney calls Lindsay and says, I'm just throwing this out. But what if you enjoy adopt this little girl? 
We love her, but we already have a daughter in college and and a 12-year-old, and honestly, we think your family would give this baby a great chance at life. Lindsay and Joy took a day to pray about it, and then the next day, Lindsay emailed Whitney saying, we would love to do what's best for this little one. And so now we have this little bundle of energy who has turned our family completely upside down, and we wouldn't trade her for all the money in the world. But God, but God said, I'm not going to let this little life be thrown away and wasted. But God. Now, so far, it's a good story. (laughs) We're only two years into it. (laughs) Does that mean there won't be pain and, and, and sorrow in the future? Does that mean that for those of us in the church that all of our but God stories will have happy little bows tied on them? No, no, no. It means pain will come, but God will have the eternal last word. Now, you may be thinking, uh, sounds like the church at Corinth had a lot of lowly people. But come on, what about Paul? I mean, he had confidence, he was brilliant, he was educated. And this is, this is where it gets weird. You see, there were these self-proclaimed teachers who came to Corinth and they tried to pull people away from Paul and his message of the lowly Jesus. And so they would compare themselves and their ministry with Paul, stating that they had greater vision, greater miracles, were more eloquent than Paul. And as a result, they attracted these financial backers who would give them all kinds of money. Paul wouldn't have it. So Paul writes to the church at Corinth, hoping to win back people to the lowly Jesus and the cross. And so you'd expect Paul, in order to get the people to follow him, you'd expect them to lead with his credentials. Number of souls saved, number of churches started, number of sermons preached, number of converts, number of New Testament letters written, but he does none of that. Instead, what he says to commend himself to the people of Corinth is one of the oddest things ever. 2 Corinthians 11, I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged severely, been exposed to death again and again. What are you doing, Paul? That list will impress no one. He lists his failures and his problems and his rejections and his humiliations. And then it all climaxes in 2 Corinthians 12 again when it says, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, and he did not. A lot of guesses have been made about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Might have been a vision problem. Some think he might have had epilepsy. Some think he suffered from severe anxiety. We're told that Paul was not eloquent or impressive in front of the people, so maybe he had a speech impediment. Maybe he stuttered badly. Maybe he had a weight problem. Whatever it is, it's a source of ridicule and humiliation and shame for Paul. And if that's not bad enough, he prays and he asks God to remove it, and his prayers aren't answered three times. These other apostles coming to Corinth are strong, successful, eloquent, wealthy, poster boys for God. And here's Paul, a train wreck, a beaten, imprisoned, whipped, tent-making, conceit-prone, prayer-failing, self-confessed weakling. And you're going to lead with this, Paul? Why would anybody talk about themselves that way? One reason, two words, but God. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Who talks like this? Who thinks this way? Who views life this way? Paul, you cannot be serious, but he is. Because he's convinced that everybody has a source of strength outside of themselves. 
that everybody has a calling, even the most lowly, and that everybody has a thorn, even the most exalted. So the question is, are you going to say, but I, or but God, but I can't, or but I, God can? And the answer you choose will determine the life you lead. 16 months ago, I uh, had a heart cath, and it was scary. And then a month after that, I was given what I believed to be a physical thorn in the flesh. I lost my hearing in my left ear completely. It's called sudden hearing loss, and it threw me off something terrible. I was just anxious. All I wanted to do was just sit in a quiet room all by myself, all by myself. I couldn't, I wouldn't talk on the phone. When Vicky would rattle pans or even turn on the TV, I'd say, Vicky, do you have to make so much noise? It was terrible, and I was terrible. And I hate to think how many times I prayed asking God to please take this thorn away from me and, and restore, this, restore the hearing in my left ear. And of course, I couldn't help but think that my preaching days were over. I mean, Tyler would call and ask me to preach, and I just couldn't up until today. And here I am. But God, but God, but God. You know, some people are naturally confident when it comes to dating. I was not one of those people. I was a 17-year-old freshman in college when I saw this attractive girl named Vicki who was a junior. So I'm thinking to myself, but I'm just a freshman. So why would she be interested in me? But I'm shy, but I'm fearful, but I'll never find the courage to ask her out, but I, but I, but I. And so acting like I was still in middle school, instead of talking to her directly, I hinted to a couple upperclassmen on the basketball team that I thought I liked her, hoping that it would get back to her. And it did get back to her. And here's how I got back to her. Vicki, there are five freshmen on the basketball team, and one of them thinks he might like you, to which Vicki asked, is it Jeff? <laughs> no. Is it Chuck? No. Is it Phil? No. Is it Bob Ming? No. Then who is it? Bob Cherry. And she said, who? <laughs> I then found out that she'd been on a date with a guy named Chuck who was seven feet tall and played basketball for Purdue. And so I'm thinking to myself, but I'm only six one and a half. This guy's seven feet tall. But I play for the Cincinnati Bible College. This guy plays for Purdue. He's probably better at the dating stuff than me, probably better looking than me, higher on the food chain. I knew I didn't have a chance, but God smote that man down, romantically speaking. <laughs> a few months back, I walked into our little Florida condo and Vicki was on the phone with the young minister's wife from Washington Courthouse, Ohio. I believe it was week six or seven of Vicki mentoring this young lady. Now, you don't know this, but when a new young staff person would come to work at Northeast, Vicki would spend eight to ten weeks with that staff person's wife talking about life and family and ministry and expectations. And here she was doing it again with this young preacher's wife. And so unbeknownst to Vicki, I listened into their conversation, and once again I heard her use her amazing gifts of authenticity and faith and wisdom that God has given her. And I remember thinking, I'm the luckiest guy in the world, but God. You know something else? Our, our church is a but God story. Northey started in 1977 at Zachary Taylor School in Westport Road. 
That was 44 years ago. First Sunday, man, we had 70 in attendance. Second week, we had 30. Third week, we had 20. <laughs> but look at us now, but God. And then when we started looking for property and we found this land, everybody, everybody said to me, you're crazy. It's too far out in the boonies. People will not drive out past Snyder Freeway, but God. It's a picture of Brad Frame. Brad was seven when his family started attending Northeast and Zachary Taylor. Brad was a good kid involved in our youth ministry. We knew he had potential. Today, Brad is part of the leadership team at Milligan College in Tennessee, and he currently serves as an elder at the Sojourn Church in Louisville. But God. This is Neil Webster and his wife, Barbara. When I first met Neil, he had no clue about Christianity. No clue. Today, Neil is a mature follower, heavily involved in world missions, and currently serves as the chairman of the Eastern Dominican Republic Ministries. But God. And the trophy he's holding is for winning the Super Senior Golf Championship at Valhalla. I've seen him play golf. That's for sure is a but God trophy. <laughs> this is Scott Watkins. When Scott came to Northeast, he'd always sit on the back row. You know anybody like that? We used to throw ropes over the back to encourage people not to sit there, and Scott would just move the ropes every single time because Scott was a back row guy looking for meaning and purpose. Today, Scott is a well-respected executive with Norton Healthcare, serves on the board of Christian Academy, has been an elder here at Northeast for years, but God. This is Greg Class. Greg went to South Odom, was involved in our youth ministry. He's a quiet kid, good soccer player, known for his really long red hair. Today, ready for this? Greg serves as a missionary to college students in Chile in South America. But God. These next two guys are cousins, Brent and Mason Bramer. Both of them grew up in our youth minister here at Northeast. Today, Brent is the lead pastor of a new church plant in San Luis Obispo, California. Mason is on the staff at Southeast in men's ministry, but is getting the itch to start and lead a new church. And you want to say, but God. This is Jonathan Grabhorn. John was an active part of our youth ministry as well, somewhat of a quiet kid. Today, ready? Jonathan lives in Vancouver, Washington, right across the river from Portland, Oregon, where he serves as the executive pastor of a brand new church plant in Portland, Oregon, of all places. But God. It's a picture of Joyce Strange. Several years ago, Joyce's husband, Roy, was stricken with the horrible Louis body disease and quickly passed away. A year later, while sitting in this auditorium, Joy looked around, wondered how she could honor her husband and bless the church at the same time. You see the prayer room over there to the right? Developed and furnished by joy so the people of Northeast could have a quiet place to pray. But God. This is a picture of two 10-year-old girls named Abby and Stephanie. They were best buds growing up at Northeast. Best buds. Today, she has a hat on in this picture, but here's the real picture. Abby Wilder is a most valuable player in our children's ministry. Wouldn't you agree? While her friend, Stephanie, Stephanie Haugen, our oldest daughter, is the associate campus pastor of the Willow Creek Church in Chicago, but God. This next one is Lindsay Keck. That's our youngest. <laughs> Lindsay grew up here at Northeast, went to college, got a tattoo. 
got another tattoo, got another tattoo, married a guy with a tattoo named Joey. Today, Lindsay is a tattoo artist. No, she's really not. <laughs> Lindsay serves at our Clifton campus and uh, is our kids' own director here at Browns- Brownsboro. And that's just the uh, butt God. This is a picture of a young man who grew up in Northeast filled with all kinds of energy, would wear you out. His trademark back then was to wear what he called a do-rag on his head. Nasty, da- nasty thing. Today, you ready for this? Jason Shreve <laughs> serves as our lead outreach pastor here at Northeast. That's a butt God for sure. This next one is a picture of a young man who, when he, ready for this, listen to this, when he was a senior in high school, almost did not graduate because he cut so many classes to go fishing. His teacher called him in and said, you cut one more class, you will not graduate. In 2016, at the age of 29, this young man became the lead pastor of Northeast Christian, but God, right? But God. This is a picture of Mark and Kelly Parrish and Kelly's daughter, Katrin. In 2012, Katrin was in a horrible car accident and she died six days later. I did the funeral. It was one of the saddest funerals I've ever been a part of. And as you would expect of any mother, Kelly was devastated. She told me there were days when she couldn't get up out of bed. She just would cry. She wrestled with God daily. Her grief was just overwhelming. Finally, over a long period of time, and it took years, Kelly, thank God, started working through her grief. Since then, Kelly and Mark have been blessed with the birth of not one, but two little girls. Now, they also purchased 19 acres of land in Bedford, Kentucky, where they have established the Camberwell Grief Sanctuary, a safe place in the middle of nature where people can go who have experienced grief due to the loss of a child, a sibling, or a spouse, and it is an amazing place. You know, when Katrin passed away, I'm sure Kelly thought her life was over. But God had concerns for the hurting in the Louisville area. So out of a deep grief, this life-giving sanctuary was born that will provide peace and quiet and refuge for those who find themselves in the midst of pain and despair, and you can't help but think, but God, but God, but God, but God. You know, I honestly believe that the past 18 months have been the most difficult months in the 44 years of Northeast with COVID and no services been a tough 18 months. And from what I'm reading, a lot of churches are still struggling. I listened to a podcast the other day that said only 60%, maybe 70% of all the people who used to attend church before the pandemic are now back. Where'd the other 30 to 40% go? And do you remember when COVID first hit people, uh, people would pray and, and people were running to their Bibles for wisdom and for strength. From what I'm hearing, people aren't doing that anymore. And when I hear those things, I can't help but think, but I, but I, but I. I want to get back to church, but I kind of like staying home on the couch. I know it's important to meet with the Lord in prayer and Bible study, but I just don't make the time. I know I should be living the love of lifestyle, but I'm not sure I want to. I know I should be generous in my giving to the Lord, but I like things and I like stuff. 
I know I should be in a small group, but I don't want to make the time commitment. I know I should be serving at church with kids, with parking, with a Love the Ville ministry, but I've got so many other things to do, but I, but I, but I, but I. You know, 44 years from now, when people look back on the pandemic, I think they're going to say it was bad. It was really bad. It was. And yet my ongoing prayer is that they will also say, but it was a turning point for churches. People got serious about following Jesus and they moved from living a but I life to a but God life. And as a result, spiritual change swept through our churches, our nation and our land. Now imagine with me, Northeast 44 years from now, Rhonda Lamb Laguna, our executive pastor will be over 90, long gone. Jason Shreve, our outreach pastor will be exactly 90, probably gone. Tyler McKenzie will be 79. I'll be 113 years old, probably have to preach sitting down. I don't know. (laughs) Imagine with me 44 years from now. Northeast, filled with fully devoted followers who are loving Jesus and loving the Ville in such a passionate way that the city of Louisville has more heart and more vitality for God than any other city in the United States. Why would God not want that? And why would you not give yourself wholly to be a part of that? But God. You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was put to death on the cross. (laughs) But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible to keep its hold on him and death cannot keep its hold on you. So move from a life that says, but I, to a life that says, but God. So this week, those are your two words, but God, not but I, but God. So don't you give up. Don't you dare settle. Don't you stop dreaming. Don't you stop studying and praying. Don't you give in to sin. Whatever hurt or heartbreak you're facing, when you feel inadequate and you will, when you feel unspiritual and you will, when you're lonely or confused or frightened, when you know you're not smart enough or strong enough or rich enough, but God, but God, but God, but God. Heavenly Father, I pray for everybody in this room. I pray for people who just feel defeated. Parents who have lost a child, families that are brokenhearted, fiancés that have walked away. People who so much wanted to make a difference but weren't able to get the education or the opportunity. Lord, I pray that the crucified one who met Paul on the road to Damascus and turned everything upside down would meet every man, every woman here today. But God, but God, But God, would you use us? But God, would you forgive us? But God, would you change us? But God, would you give us a new day and a new start and a new heart for tomorrow? But God, but God, but God, but God. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.